Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online. Before I get going this morning, I just want to take a moment to speak to our North community. I had the privilege of finally getting up there last week for the very first time. And I just want to say to all of you meeting in the North, thank you so much for your amazing service to that community in the North. It's just unbelievable. So I just want to say good morning and thank you to all of you. Amazing staff and volunteers. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. As Lori said in the video, and as we've been saying here, it's the new year, it's 2016, and we get to go back into our major series called Living Hope. And as we found out as a family in the fall, if there's one little book found in the New Testament, which main, its main theme is hope, it's the small book of First Peter. So if you've got a Bible, virtual or physical this morning, would you turn back to First Peter? And like I shared in the fall, if there is any person in Jesus's inner circle that has the authority and the right to speak about hope, it's Peter himself. Himself. Remember his story? I mean, Peter is a man who truly experienced hope. His own story is hope giving and hope inspiring and hope producing. If God could use and change Peter after his over promising and under delivering, his rejection of Jesus, his blaspheming of God, his foot and mouth problem, then we all have hope sitting here today because if God could change Peter, he can use any of us also. But it's not just his story that matters as we get back into this series. We need to remind ourselves once again about the audience that Peter was originally writing to 2,000 years ago. He is writing not to one church, but a group of churches that were now under formal persecution by the Roman government. This is the beginning of the very first formal opposition by the Roman government under Nero against the church. And so the simple question being asked in 1 Peter is this. How do I cope with suffering? And how do I cope with a world that seems out of control and at the same time keep my hope shining bright and alive? I think it's just as relevant today as it was then. I mean, think about what we've heard over the last four weeks. We continue to have a massive, massive problem globally out of Syria and Iraq, right? We've got terror cells. We have a country that was testing a nuclear bomb this week. Like, we live in a world that is still full of suffering and actually very dark and seemingly out of control. And the question being answered, not being mused about, being answered in First Peter's this, how do I, in the midst of out-of-control situations and even personal suffering, how does the living hope I claim and sing about stay alive and real? Well, remember where Peter started. Before he actually got into the knit and grit of life and suffering and wondering, he took extreme amount of time to remind us of what God has done in us, over us, and through us. Remember, he was saying things like this, no matter your gender or your economic status, no matter what people have declared over you, since you now are a Christian and now you have living hope, you now know how God sees you and what God says lasts. 
And he said all these different things. He says that you're elected. Remember, he was writing to slaves who were actually bottom rung of society who might never be free or might be free. But he said, you remember that the God of the universe actually chose you, you. It doesn't matter what your master says. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. God has chosen you and elected you. He's foreknown you before the beginning of time. He says to the whole Christian church in 1 Peter, you're sanctified right now, made good with God, covered in forgiven. You have been mercy drenched. You're newly born. And he says your resurrection, your physical resurrection is guaranteed. He said that your faith is given to you and secured by Jesus. And he even said that God the Father is your own personal bodyguard who's watching over your faith. He says this is how heaven sees you. He even says that God will choose to redeem the suffering and the chaos and the brokenness of this world to make us more like Jesus. He says you're more blessed than the prophets and the patriarchs of the Old Testament because they predicted Jesus, but you've actually met Jesus. He even said that angels watch us and are completely in wonder and amazement and in confusion that God would entrust so much to us. He said you're a chosen people. He says you're a holy nation. He said you belong to God. He says that we get to declare the praises of him who called us out of demonic darkness, out of sinful darkness, out of death itself, and we've been called into his wonderful life. He said that we have direct access to God, and God has given us living hope. The key verse comes in 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Anyone want to say amen? That is how heaven sees. This is what heaven has done for every single Christian in every single generation. This is the living hope each one of us has. And this living hope, by the way, is the foundation and is the eternal spring that gives us dignity, gives us a secure destiny, and gives us biblical determination to keep going even when the world goes sideways and even when we're suffering. But then, Peter said... Living hope cannot just be talked about or mused about or lived inside the circle called church. It is forbidden to keep within the walls of the church. He said living hope, if it's genuine and real and spirit-breathed and heaven-given, will spill out and break out into every single place we go, in our work, where we live, where we sleep, and where we play. And in one verse, Peter pushes the whole church out. Remember, writing to an audience that's already under persecution and suffering. 1 Peter 2.12. You live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong or lie about you, they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God on the day he visits us. So Peter says, what is holiness? What does living hope look like in every situation? What does it look like to live such a good, godly life among non-Christians with a thousand views, scientific views, religious views, sexual views, a million views, How do we do this? And Peter says, well, the rest of the book or letter I'm writing you is the answer to that. He says, let me answer it this way. This is how, and remember we walked through this. He says, this is how a Christian is to interact with the government. 
And then he said, this is how slaves are to actually work with masters, and masters are how, this is how masters are actually supposed to deal with slaves. Now today we address a new thing. This is how a spouse walks with a non-Christian partner. Now as we found out just before Christmas, Peter says there is one word though that encompasses the command of living a godly life. There is one, one word that summarizes godly living, holy living. It's the strongest expression of eternal living hope. It's a shocking word. It's a jarring word. It's a difficult word. It's the word submit. Submit. Now, submission is not a popular term in our culture. We are independent. We are the ones who will determine our own destiny. If we get enough education, right, we've been taught this our whole lives. But let me just give you the basic definition of submission. Submission means to subject yourself under another person according to the, we hate this, order of that relationship. And Peter is saying something deeply countercultural in his time and in our time. He actually says, you want to know the secret of a Christian life? You want to know what a normal Christian life looks like as you're walking in darkness and among many others who disagree with you? He says, the strongest outworking of fearing God, the best way to love other people, the best way to walk in the love of God is to have your life, my life, our lives actually molded by this one word, submission. Submission to the Lordship of Christ. We sang it here this morning in this context. We said, nothing is hidden. Really? Submission to Christ. Submission to God's love. We don't just say, yeah, yeah, we're elected for no, no, no. We build our identity and our value in what God has declared over us. Submission to the fear of God. We believe as Christians we're going to give an account. Submission under God's word. God's word is the final say for faith, life, and practice. And then Peter says, and submission to those that God has placed over us. Now, I've shared this every single week when I've preached on this. Submission does not mean blind and unchecked conformity and utter submission. It does not mean unthinking adherence, but it does mean what it means. Submit. Now, why would any single one of us ever consider such an un-North American, American ideal? Well, he has already taught us it's for the Lord's sake. For Jesus' sake, if you're a Christian this morning, you believe you're going to give an account on Judgment Day on how you've treated everyone else. So God has asked you to submit. And as we're about to see again today, submission isn't just about our walk with God and our trust with God. It actually is directly connected to actually seeing other people meet Jesus. In other words, the countercultural call in Living Hope is this. We give up or we lay down our rights we choose to become second so other people can move from haters to worshipers. But at the core, every time we see the call biblically for us to submit, it is to imitate the one we supposedly sing to, know, and walk with. We want to be like Jesus, we say. Well, what is the largest characteristic of Jesus? Jesus submitted to the Father. He says in John, I did nothing except what the Father told me. And look at his trials. Even when he was being falsely accused, he submitted himself into a situation for our redemption. So now we come to the next group that Peter's writing to in his context. 
He's writing to a very vulnerable group of people living in that time in that society. Now, he's addressing wives. But more than wives, in general, he's addressing women who are married to non-Christian husbands. So they both were non-Christians, and then somewhere along the way, the wife has met Christ, and the husband has not or will not. Now, context is king this morning, and everything I'm going to say needs background. In Roman times, a woman would adopt not only the social circles of her husband, mandatory, but the faith of her husband also. She could have a side faith or a private faith, but the public religion of the family was the husband's choice and the wife had no say. So let me put it in a very modern context. If your husband's an atheist, you're an atheist. If your husband's a New Ager, you're a New Ager. Husband's a Buddhist, you're a Buddhist, period. That's how it goes. Who he worships, you worship. Now, there are two groups of Christian wives getting this letter for the first time. You've got Jewish women and non-Jewish women who've both met Jesus and now are in the church community, and he's writing this letter. Let me give you the background to both because it really matters as we get into this. Ben Worthington, a very famous New Testament scholar, gives us the best summary of the plight of Jewish women in that time. He said, the dominant expression left by our early Jewish sources is a very patriarchal society that limited a woman's role and functions to the home. And it also, beyond that, severely restricted their inheritance rights, their choice of relationships, who they could hang out with, and their ability to pursue religious education or fully participate in the synagogue, and also their freedom of movement. They had to ask permission if they could go anywhere. Now, while it would be wrong to think that everything was bad for women in the Jewish world, it would not be wrong to think that their world was highly restrictive, patriarchal, and clearly debilitating to the development of a woman's gifts. And so certain women who have now declared that Jesus is Messiah are living with husbands in that context. Now, in the same church, sitting beside them three chairs down, are some Roman women or Greek women who have a very different experience. Scott McKnight, another scholar, gives us the other side of the coin. He said women in Greco-Roman worlds, in the Greco-Roman world, on the other hand, were actually in most cases much better off. But women, but what women could or could not do depended on location and culture. So wives of citizens in Athens basically had the same amount of freedom as Jewish women but for different reasons. Well, women in Asian Minor, modern Turkey, where Peter is writing some of this to, had much more opportunity to pursue their own interests. Women were engaged in private business, served in public office, had predominant roles in faith. They were able to vote, hold public office, and Roman society in particular actually allowed more property rights for women, permitted greater leverage with divorce and marriage situations, and encouraged more education for women. So here's the deep, very practical question that Peter's trying to work out. So you've met Jesus, and your identity's rooted in Jesus, and you have living hope, but you're going home to a husband that does not believe in the same God you do. And he's now writing to a diverse audience of women. What do they do? Now, I'm sure that many husbands were discouraging their wives for worshiping Jesus, let alone going to church. Some might even be abusing them or threatening them. So Peter's response under the power of the Spirit is shocking and goes in a direction none of us would expect. The very first thing that Peter is about to say as he's writing this letter is, you as a wife are God's chosen missionary to your husband and your family. So now that you're a Christian, and since that you have living hope, 
And now that you've critical, rooted your identity and your worth not in your economic position or your lack of rights or your rights themselves or your social position, but since you've rooted your value and worth in the love of God, not what your husband says, and since you now fear God and love God even more than your husband, for Jesus' sake, follow Jesus' example, ready, and submit to your husband. We're going, hold on, that's not the right strategy. 1 Peter 3.1. Wives, in the same way as I've talked to everyone, citizens, slaves, masters, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, the gospel, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your life. Win over your husband, not by direct confrontation, but by your deep transformation in your own life. Remember, you're not Jesus, but he is only going to see Jesus probably through you. Now, let me just stop for this morning. I'm going to stop lots during this message because I don't want 5.3 million emails this week. Let me tell you what this does not mean, because this has been preached very badly many times. Let me explain what this does not mean. I love when another pastor simply said it this way. This does not mean that if your husband asks you to abandon the Christian faith, you must. You actually must do the opposite. No. This does not mean that if your husband ever asks you to sin, you must sin. You never sin because you fear God more than your husband. This does not mean that if your husband uh, says that you must agree with him, you have to agree with him on all things. You can present a different view. It does not mean that if your, fa- your husband is unfaithful to you, you are left with, without biblical recourse. It does not mean that if your husband is physically abusing you or abandons you through incessant verbal humiliation, you must remain quiet in the home and accept daily cruelty of the relationship at all costs. Absolutely not. This is not what is being taught here. But he is saying as a general principle... He is saying that you are called, if you're married to a non-Christian spouse, to win your husband over by Jesus' deep transformation of your own life. Now, the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom, is profound. And it says this, It is better to live on the corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. It is better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now, I'm so glad no man just said amen, because you'd be an idiot. (laughs) Right? And by the way, read Proverbs. There's a lot for you boys. There's a lot for us. But this is what Peter's saying. And by the way, that's true. And he's saying, that can't mark you as a Christian woman at home. Married to a non-Christian spouse or not. This is critical. Don't let your talking about Jesus be like a dripping tap that pushes your husband away. It's interesting. When I've talked to spouses married to Christians... One of the things they complain about the most is the incessant assault by Christian spouses to convert them to the point where it has turned them off from any conversation. Don't be nagging about Jesus. And by the way, not just about Jesus, don't be quarrelsome, Peter says. Instead, you want to win him over? Do you, question one, do you want to win him over? And if you want your husband to have eternal life and the good news of Jesus, let him see the purity and the reverence of your life. 
be holy, be radically different with how you now treat sex and money and power and relationships and entertainment. How you speak matters. How you don't speak matters. Your body language matters. How you treat your husband matters. How you treat family and others matter. May your life, Peter says, be so holy that when your husband says something out of anger or dismisses your faith or other people lie about your faith or accuse you of something, your life and beliefs will prove them wrong in the long run. Turn your husband from a hater to wonder and worship because he sees that you have become actually different. Evangelism, telling other people about Jesus and the good news that is the best news, is directly connected to the carrier, how we live our life. This is what Peter, by the way, has not just said to this group of women. He said this to all of us. Remember when talking about the government, 1 Peter 2.17? Show proper respect for everyone, love the church, fear God, and honor the emperor. He says, look, you got to respect your husband. You got to love the church and you only fear God. See, this is how we as Christians disarm criticism, undermine suspicion, show the gospel, and it's like this submission and respect, not protest and yelling. So you honor your husband and you fear God. By the way, this Christian worldview is so, so dangerous. Because already, I don't know if you've caught it now knowing the original context, the Christian worldview shouts no to men dominating women, yet at the exact same time asks women to lay down their rights for the sake of the gospel. See, this letter is so subversive because it says a wife can choose to follow Jesus and be part of the Christian community no matter what her husband says, no matter his social circles, and no matter his views. So she says, no, I will go to church. No, I will follow Christ. No, I will not worship the God you worship anymore. Yet at the exact same time, she is called to submit in all sorts of other ways so she can win her husband over to Christ. And really, the great question Peter is asking to this group of women and to some of you is this. What is more important to you, your rights or eternal life? Well, Peter keeps going on and he outlines and demonstrates how this is done. This is what life-giving experiences look like. This is what soul-winning conduct looks like. He says, women... Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles or wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Okay, let's stop in another context. Is this saying that a woman is sinning if she ever braids her hair? Most of you are in trouble at this moment. If any of you have jewelry, hell is like, what? I remember I had a friend in a church that taught this literally. And so she would come to school at 9 o'clock in the morning, put on makeup, and at 3 o'clock take it off so she could honor her parents and still have a life. That is not what God's heart is. Legalism never changes the heart. What he's saying, though, is what matters in the long run? As in our culture and in that culture, women are under massive pressure to keep up, look beautiful, and to have more. Social media has made this worse. The thousands of magazines in every chapters, the multi-billion or trillion dollar industry that makeup and fashion, and then there's the psychological tsunami of feeling ugly, self-hate, unwanted, all based on fat, looks, and body image. And then let's just be honest. Style changes every single season. And by the way, you can't keep up unless you're really rich. 
and things can get stolen and people get old and beauty fades. And guess what? If you happen to be part of the 0.0.0% that when you're 75 or 80, you still look 50, you've got tons of money and you're always on trend, surprise, you're still going to die and rot like the rest of us. So, this is about priority, money, time, and focus. You know, the greatest tendency in a middle-class church like ours is vanity. I'm better than you. I'm more important than you. I'm more valuable than you because of what I own, where I come from, what house I have, what I look like. This is forbidden in God's house. The point of this passage is not to command or legislate women to wear or not wear this. He is saying this, do you really want to attract your husband to Jesus? Then ask God where the beauty is that lasts. Because interesting, the Bible never says Tiffany, Burberry, or Coach, ever. (laughs) Rather, he says it should be of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle spirit, a quiet spirit, a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Ladies, he's saying, spend most of your time fixating and dressing up your insides, not just your outsides. The most alluring and the most beautiful and the most powerful and the most gospel-giving gift you can give to anyone, let alone a non-Christian husband, is gentleness and peace. And by the way, this is for all women, not just women in this situation. Now, don't misunderstand this. Gentleness is another word for meekness. And I'm pretty sure that Jesus was meek. Meek is not weak. It is, it is never used for people who are indecisive or timid. It means those who have great power keep it under control. It is putting someone else's interests over your own interests. People that are growing in gentleness and meekness never seek revenge, and they start shedding things like wrath and anger and violence and theft and brutality in their own lives, in business, and in their their personal relationships because they have experienced forgiveness. Not bitter, not vengeful, not nagging, not self-obsessed, and not a gossip. He says, if you want to win over your husband, be a woman of great meekness. And then he says, be also marked by a quiet spirit. This does not mean shut up. This does not mean don't talk. This means, there's another phrase for this, it means peaceable. By the way, you notice these are just fruit of the spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Like He says, be peaceful. Not rebellious, not restless, never always, not always disturbing, never submissive. No, be the opposite. See, here's what Peter's actually been saying to all groups, slaves, citizens, wives, and he's going to address the husbands in a minute. The evidence and the power of the gospel is worked out when your life actually changes with those who are closest to you. Now, Peter looks back as some of the greatest women of the Old Testament. And he chooses Sarah as the example for this. She's considered one of the four mothers of Israel. You've got Leah, right? Rachel. And you've got got Leah, Rachel, Rebecca, and Sarah. But this woman, Sarah, is the woman of promise. He says, for this is the way holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, in other words, not hope in things, used to adorn themselves. They submitted to themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him 
Lord. Ooh, people started doing this. Now, hold on. Sarah is an amazing pick, and let me tell you why. Read the story of Sarah. Strong, got in her husband's face many, many times, was real, honest, faithful, actually quite beautiful, submissive, and flawed all at once. But see the phrase, Lord? That is a direct quote from Genesis 18. Sarah is now very old, and so is Abraham. God shows up with two angels at Abraham's tent. And this is how the story goes. He says, where's your wife, Sarah? Well, they're in the tent. Then one of them asks, well, I will, I, he says, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of her tent, which was behind him. And, Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah were very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah, what? Laughed. Laughed to herself, not out loud, laughed to herself and thought, didn't say it out loud, after I'm worn out and my Lord, there it is, is old, will I now have this pleasure? And then God said to Abraham, why did Sarah just laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. So God comes and promises they will have a son, though she's very old and barren. Sarah laughs at in unbelief to God. God cannot and will not do this. This is impossible. Now let me just say this today. Many women today, including a large amount of you, when you hear the word submission, you laugh in unbelief. That's crazy, God. You'll not come through if I do it. You don't know who my husband is. It's not worth it if I do it. I sing God is faithful, but I do not believe he will be here. God will not draw my spouse or go beyond the situation. There is no power and there is no protection in being gentle and full of peace in this culture. I must stand up as a woman in this culture or I will get crushed. Now, I know that I'm a 40-year-old white male saying this, so I have a thousand barriers as I'm speaking this. But I am not the author of this book. God is the God of the impossible. And God is a God who never lies. And I remind you, especially women, God is your Father who is watching out for you. And He is faithful. So will you continue to be Sarah who mocks God? Or will you be Sarah in a year that is laughing in the right direction with new life? He says, You will be a daughter of Sarah if you do what is right. And you do not give way to fear. I love that's in here. Because what he says, as you choose to become more like Christ to these husbands, he's saying in this context, you will continue to demonstrate, but never forget, you don't fear him, you only fear God. And by the way, this is a huge challenge, because as one scholar said, all types of physical intimidation and emotional and social would be used to force these women back in line with their husband's religious beliefs. While calling for gentleness and peace overall and submission to their husbands in areas indifferent to the Christian faith, he encourages them at the same time to stand firm in the light of the hope that is coming in Christ and quietly refuse to bow to the threats or punishments of their husbands. Peter is so countercultural in so many directions all at once. I want you to submit, but stand. Respect and love your husband, but love and stand for God more. Lay your rights down, but actually stand up. See, the kingdom of God cannot be put into little boxes. It breaks them all. 
But never forget that the call for submission is rooted in being like Jesus because supposedly we've met him. Well, I'm sure when the first time this was being passed out in church and being read, whether in a synagogue that was still okay with the conversation with Christians or in a house somewhere, there was a bunch of Christian husbands going, that's right, tell them. That's right, that's good. And then sort of, you know, what's going on? And Peter goes, gentlemen, I have some words now for you. The girl's like, that's right, bring it. All right, (laughs) give them a proverb, John. Okay, I will. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. You treat them with respect as the weaker partner, I'll explain that, as heirs with you of a gracious gift of life, so nothing will hinder your prayers. In the same way, whoa. So everything I've just said to them, I'm now saying to you. Husbands, you've met Jesus, and you're called to be deeply like Jesus too. So as you live with your wife, and as you do life with your wife, and as you do life with your family, you be a shining example. Your inner life has to be changed as much as hers. Now be considerate to your wife. Now it's really interesting that if you read the word considerate in the original language, it's connected to the word knowledge. Old translations use this. The word knowledge directly is a reference to having sex. Peter's really bringing this on. He's saying, look, here's critical. I want you to love and honor and cherish your wife in all aspects, including sex. Men, if you're fixated on getting your needs met all the time, you are not obeying Christ. Jesus forms how you treat your wife. So whether you're in the bedroom having sex or just having breakfast or on your way to work or just watching Netflix or just doing life, you cherish your wife because God has commanded it. But not only that, he says, you also do it because your wife is the weaker sex. I'm, no, hold on. This does not mean women are morally or intellectually inferior. Look at what Peter just asked them to do. It has nothing to do with weakness. This is a general statement about physical strength and social standing in this culture. I think we all can agree, in general, men tend to be stronger than women. And since Peter has made a direct reference to the bedroom and sex, he is actually saying to them, you better honor your wife and never ever physically and or socially hurt your wife. See, in that culture, you could get away with sexually hurting your wife or physically because in general, men aren't just stronger, they had more power. And here's what he's saying, husbands... You lay down your social rights and even your physical strength, not only because she's weaker, but here's something else. She has the same salvation you have. She's God's daughter, right? She's your sister in Christ, right? How are you treating God's very precious daughter? Let me bring it home this way. Gentlemen, if you're married, God, Yahweh, is your father-in-law. So when the father-in-law knocks on the door and says, how are you treating my daughter? Side note, I'm God. I know everything. Seriously, let this sink in. He says, you honor your wife because she is God's precious daughter. And she's a co-heir in Christ. She has the same spiritual position you do. When she prays and you pray, you walk into the same holy place. Jesus is her high priest and your high priest. She has eternal life. You have eternal life. She's seated with Christ in the heavenly realms too. Peter says, you want to know how serious our father takes this? God would be so offended if you disrespect your wife that he just will stop answering your prayers. What? Yep, 
done. No, they can't be right there. Now, notice it says prayers plural. A lot of scholars actually believe what's implied here is husbands and wives are praying together. And he's basically saying it would be very difficult to pray regularly with your wife if you're mistreating her. Anyone want to say amen to that, women? No, really, think about this. And he's saying if you do not treat your spouse as Christ intends it, your prayers supernaturally will be hindered. See, I think a lot of men stop praying because a lot of times they don't see answers. And a lot of times we're looking for the next sort of fix. How can I fix my prayer? What would make me pray better? Let me ask a different question. Maybe as men we should stop and look if we're married at how we're treating our spouses and see if the blockage is there first. Maybe this is the reason why prayer so much of the time is led in the church by women and men never show up. He says, look, the countercultural living hope thing that this whole movement's about, Christianity, is rooted in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the Son of God and God in flesh who is eternally praised and has all power, but he submitted to win the world. Are you willing to do it too? This is how you witness at home. This is how you witness as a citizen. This is how you witness at work. Power is not the be-all and end-all, nor our rights. The gospel is. It's what lasts. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are you married to a non-Christian? Are you married to a non-Christian? There's a whole group of you that you are. Now, whether it's a husband or wife, let me just share a few things for us this morning. This is God's perfectly timed message for you. In this season, in this moment, God, your father, knew you needed to have this conversation. And God needs to do some heart work today. Here's the first thing. God needs to remind you, if you're in this case, or you know someone in this situation, he needs to relieve you of a pressure that you've placed on yourself or the church has officially or unofficially. God is the savior of your spouse, not you. If you are walking around with the pressure that you must convert your spouse, you will be weighed down and you will never be free. God is the one who elects, not you. But he has said in this passage there is a role for you. And the role is very interesting. He is asking you to make you like his son Jesus. Where you would literally say, Jesus... I would like you now to begin such a work in my life that I would be marked by meekness and gentleness and peace, whatever that looks like. And I want to be that person. And by the way, not just for married to non-Christians, this is a great prayer for all community, all women in our church. God speaks through his word and reminds you of the possibility of the salvation of your spouse. Some of you are wondering if it's ever going to happen. God is still sovereign. He reminds you that no matter what your husband or wife, if you're married, has said to you or spoken over you or spatted at you, you root your identity and your value in how God views you, not what they've said passively or aggressively. And by the way, I want to remind you, it's very clear in this passage that God will reward you in eternity for your faithfulness in this most difficult of missionary situations. This is the call for you. For you to say, I want to become like Jesus to my wife or husband in a way that is impossible 
but through his power can happen. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Husbands, our transformed life matters. Demanding and selfish, cherishing or kind. See, this actually is the litmus test. This might show how much living root, living hope has taken root in us. It's interesting, Cloud and Townsend wrote a very famous book called Boundaries. A lot of you have read it. It may be an overstatement, but it's profound. He says, we have never seen a submission problem that did not have a controlling husband at its root. When a wife, a Christian wife with a Christian husband begins to set clear boundaries, the lack of Christ-likeness in a controlling husband becomes evident because the wife is no longer enabling his immature behavior. She is confronting the truth, and this is critical, by setting critical biblical limits on hurtful behavior. And often when a wife sets boundaries, the husband begins to grow up. This doesn't mean if you're a husband you shouldn't lead. You are the spiritual head of your house. How interesting it would be if men were godly and profound at work and at home. One person wrote, what a woman really wants is a man who's consistent, therefore respectable. A man who lives his life with personal integrity in such a manner that he's just as famous in his living room as he is at work. So gentlemen, let me ask you some questions. The questions I've wrestled with all week. You want to grow in your prayer life? How are you treating your wife? You want to see profound answers to prayer? How are you treating your children if you have them? Look at the closest relationship, and it actually may give you the insight to why there is hindrance between you and the Father. And deeper than that, we are called to be just as countercultural and ask the Holy Spirit to lay down our rights for the sake of the gospel. Or as Paul said it in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There is no greater love than this. See, what Peter is saying is this. The gospel is about everything. And if we want to see revival take place, it will touch the closest relationships. Here's how we're going to end before we take communion together in all of our sites. We're going to pray. And here's how we're going to pray. I mean, I know there's going to be a lot of conversation in connect groups this week, which is great. But we're going to pray for every single person in our church, and there are many of you who are married to non-Christian spouses. You are, many of you actually have great marriages. You've said this to me, but you are spiritually single, and it's very painful. You can't share the most important thing with the one you love the most. So we're going to pray for them as a church that they'd be faithful, they'd continue to love Christ, and we're going to pray for the salvation of their spouse. We're going to pray for all women in our church to be gentle and full of peace. We're going to pray for all husbands and future husbands and all men in our church to be considerate and kind and non-dominating. And then we're going to ask God to do a profound thing where there would be no hindrance in any prayer life in our church. Could you say amen to that? Yeah. So let's just simply pray this together. Lord, uh, there's so much for us to work out and there's so much pain and history and you're going to have to cut through this. But our first prayer as a church is this, Lord, we lift up every person in our community that is married uh, to a non-Christian. And their, their husbands or wives aren't the enemy. <laughs> Not at all. So we pray, first of all, for all of them who are married and we pray you'd make them like Jesus to their spouse in a new way or, 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 or the same way. We pray for all the many people 
who actually are, don't know Jesus yet for a thousand reasons, who are married to Christians in our community and right across Durham. And here's what we pray, Lord, save them. Save them, we pray in Jesus. Nothing is impossible, no laughter. Lord, we pray for uh, the amazing women in our church who lead and who walk beside us and along with us. We just pray that all women in our church would be marked by this meekness and this peace that comes from the Spirit of Christ. We pray for husbands, and we pray for boys and men, married or not, across this church, by your Holy Spirit, that you would make us considerate and kind and cherishing in a way that, again, is so countercultural, where we lay down any right we have for the sake of loving. We claim that verse in Ephesians that we'd submit one to another. And lastly, Lord, forgive us if any of our prayers have been hindered because of our mistreating of others. Lord, would you convict us and would you begin to heal us and may there be new power in our prayer when this stuff gets sorted out. Oh Lord, we welcome submission into this church. Lord, come and have your way among us. We ask this in the name of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We all said, amen. We're going to respond with communion. Would you stand? It's interesting that we're doing communion today because, of course, it's the remembrance of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the remembrance of our forgiveness. Everything that Peter sort of spoke over us, the scriptures said, are reminded here. But actually, communion is the great reminder of Jesus' submission to the Father for our freedom. So we're going to invite you, if you are a Christian here today, you are welcome to come and take this and celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is a time maybe to ask forgiveness for sin, celebrate what God has done, agree with what God has been speaking through his word this morning. But the scriptures are clear. If you're not a Christian, please don't take this yet because you do not know the one it, it memorializes. And also, if you're a Christian, not struggling, but on the run, you refuse, interesting, to submit to Christ. He says, don't take it yet until you're willing to resolve that. So let me just pray. Lord, would you work out in this space what needs to be done? Maybe people need to reconcile with each other. But would you meet us at these communion tables? And we want to thank you for your submission to the Father so we would be saved. Thank you, Lord. We just pray you would bless us and meet us in this holy time. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Let's participate together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.